0: Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by IV Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At IV, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm once again joined by Thomas Kozakowski and Joseph Burns, our two production managers, and Ashley Jones, our technical support chemist. We're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP Operations Guide, written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 2 on quality issues. If you would like to follow along with us, you can view the ICP Operations Guide on our website at www.inorganicventures.com. So Paul broke this chapter down into quite a few different sections. Let's kick it off with accuracy. So Thomas as uh you have a lot of experience with quality control. You want to talk about CRM accuracy?
1: Yeah, with accuracy we we you know we try to test all of our elements with as many methods as possible. So ICP coupled with a titration, coupled with a gravimetric assay. For as many of those as we can do. There's still some out there that we can't do that for, but we're getting better every month or so. We, we
0: try to something new and see if so, this kind of titration will work. So we're getting better. Yeah, exactly. I think the best way to make sure you are accurate in one method is just confirm it with a second validated method. Mm-hmm. So even if there's something wrong with your standard that you're using as a comparison... It's less likely that you're going to have two separate standards from two different methods be off by the exact same amount, right? So you can sort of confirm your accuracy on that. Uncertainty is another, you know, big topic as well. I know that we do presentations about uncertainty quite a bit. So there's a lot that goes into it. But does anyone want to talk about uncertainty?
2: That's all you, Thomas. <laughs> <Your wheelhouse. laughs>
0: I
1: hear crickets. Um yeah, with there's a lot of statistics built into those. I mm. rely on our spreadsheets a lot, but yeah, we have an error budget built up so that you know we kind of capture all those sources of uncertainty. So when you're weighing something on a balance, it's got an uncertainty. When you use a burette, it has an uncertainty, instrument variation, whether you got repeatability issues or just RSD in your measurements off. All that compounds and get, gets captured in a final uncertainty. We even take some. Other factors in uh, homogeneity and stability over time, those are kind of required by ISO 17034. So, those are coupled in at the end. But all these terms add up, but we still got pretty good numbers, all things considered. I mean, a 1000 ppm typically gets plus or minus three. Can't really ask for better. NIST is can't go better than what NIST does, of course. And mm-hmm. they shoot for the 2.2 2- percent. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's an important point. I think a lot of people don't realize is your uncertainty is, you know, sort of baselined by the uncertainty of your standard of comparison. So if you're using a standard with a, you know, a 1% relative uncertainty, you're not going to get half a percent uncertainty on your measurements. It has to at least be 1% and it's most likely probably going to be in the range of 1.3 to 1.5%. So yeah, just something important to think about. Paul also talked about, you know, as part of accuracy, some transpiration concerns. So I think this is a good opportunity to speak about transpiration.
3: Um, Joe, do you want to kick in on this one? Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what you're packaged in. Water is going to find a way out. So as time goes on, your concentration is going to be going up. And you obviously have to try to minimize that. That's what we use our transpiration control technology, reducing the size of the universe of the bottle. Keep that water in and tight reducing the amount of transpiration, the water that gets out.
2: Yeah, transpiration is definitely a a major problem. And that's something that I have to combat when I'm quoting new solutions. In addition to the chemical stability, you have to look at the possibility that you might see precipitation or anything like that over time that maybe it's something you don't even notice and you go to run your sample and all of a sudden your numbers aren't quite right that can be a factor in chemical stability and I think a lot of people assume that but transpiration is definitely playing a much bigger part than I think most people think about because like Joey said that water is going to keep moving until it can't anymore so if we make that micro environment around the bottle and that transpiration control technology bag it definitely makes a huge difference and that plays a big part in why we're good at what we do why our standards are reliable.
1: Yeah, we've definitely done studies on the back end of that too to make sure it's good. I've had so i've weighed so many bags over the years (laughs) one of the transpiration studies i did over time was for those 30 mil bottles different matrices in them different concentrations wanted to see what would happen so weighed those monthly Mm. every month i would go take them out of wherever they were stored put them on the balance see what's happening (laughs) plot it over time very tedious but very interesting data Ziplock bags don't work by the way. <laughs>
3: well, I mean honestly, who who would think like, "Oh, I've capped my bottle, like I've put it I've put it back on my shelf." Who would think that wasn't good enough? To, right to keep the the you know the volume constant.
1: Yeah, one of the, and one of the things if you don't want to reseal a bag, stick it in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It actually stops it better than um the TCT bag, but um you got to worry about density. So That's one of the things we kind of shy away from microgram per mil. We'd prefer you use microgram per gram. Takes that density out of the equation so you can still weigh your standards when they're cold and you get the right number.
3: Well, another consideration to refrigerating your solution is you have to you either wait for it to come up to room temperature while sealed or you risk condensation forming on the inside, which there goes your certified value. Mm. Yep, Exactly.
2: So all of our standards are going to come in transpiration control technology or TCT bags. It's something that we pride ourselves on. That's a major draw for our products. So what it is, an aluminized heat sealed bag that we put our standards in after they've been manufactured, packaged and capped, you know, just putting it in that bottle is not going to be enough. So sticking it in that aluminized, again, heat sealed bag, the Ziploc bags are not going to work. We've had other people, I think, try to replicate what we've done here with our TCT bags, and it's just not quite the same. But those bags really make a huge difference in the standard and the longevity, the scientific integrity. That's why we have that five-year shelf life while it's still in that bag. But once you remove it from the bag, you only have a year from the date that it was removed or that five-year date, whichever one comes first. But that's how quickly transpiration can take over and really kind of destroy your standards. So keeping it in that sealed TCT bag will definitely, you know, give you a lot more control over the length of the time that you can use the same lot, which saves you some revalidation work. It keeps everything happy and stable. And I definitely always recommend it to our customers, you know, to buy their larger total volumes in these smaller bottles in a series of these bags, because you're using the same lot of product. But let's say you bought four bottles instead of your one total volume, You're only using a fourth of your product while the other three-fourths are still sitting on the shelf in their bag. They're on that five-year clock, and you're not worrying about anything transpiring or them getting knocked over and contaminated and things like that. So those little aluminized bags are pretty simple, but they make a huge difference in the longevity of your standards. One little
1: note there, though, on the expiration date, I mean, the 30 mil bottles don't last as long. So that long study I did with the 30 mil bottles, they do transpire faster because of that circumference of that opening. So there's more surface area with that compared to like a 500 mil bottle. Paul did a really good equation on this. It goes through the bottle walls, but also goes through the circumference of the cap. So there's definitely a different rate. And we
0: felt comfortable with six months on those. Yeah. All right. Ashley, you mentioned, you know, you're talking about the bottle. I think this is maybe the last point on this accuracy section about glass bottles versus plastic bottles and the potential contaminants and how that can impact things.
2: Yeah, we have some analytes like mercury and nitric acid for example. That's at lower levels that's going to need to be in borosilicate glass environment, which is not compatible with HF. It's also pretty dirty. Glass tends to be problematic that way. And a lot of labs just don't want to have to deal with glass. They don't want to have to package keep packages. They don't want to have to deal with the potential for knocking them over. And again, they're just pretty dirty. So we have limits for how low we can go for certain analytes in glass packaging, because it's just the potential contamination, even though we go through leaching and cleaning our consumables, it's just too high. But then you also have things that, you know, if we try to put them in plastic, they're going to stick and then that's going to be a problem. So that's why mercury goes in in those glass bottles. So the container you're putting your standards in definitely will play a role. There's just going to be Physical and you know cost and all that kind of stuff. So I know that everybody prefers plastic. We definitely prefer LDPE, but glass is sometimes a necessary evil. I think. (laughs) Got you.
0: Well, closely related to accuracy is probably purity. So let's talk a little bit about purity and the purity of starting materials. How that's so important for our standards. Anyone want
3: to jump in on this? Yeah, I'll jump in on that. So with how low of levels we go we have to make sure we have as pure possible starting material as possible because it doesn't do us any good to have, you know, these high purity things, these starting materials, and then have a, in a 1000 PPM solution to have 150 PPM of something you don't want. Cause one that adds Kirk, that adds extra peaks to your spectrum. And then there's the chance of interference and that, you know, we're trying to reduce interferences, so that's obviously bad. It makes it hard, harder to make
1: customs as well because we're trying to blend things that we think are pure and mm. then we get a carryover element. It's like, why didn't
0: this pass? Well, this had some contaminants in it. It's that aluminum from your iron. Exactly. Yeah, I think that you know, having a source of really pure standards is important for correcting a lot of interferences. So Thomas, you talk a lot in some of the presentations you've done about EPA method 6020. We've talked about in the past, like the importance of having pure single element solutions to test out interferences, to build like interference correction equations and interference tables. Yeah. Do you want to mention a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. It's critical that they're clean. I mean, if you're trying to build an interference table, you've got these extra peaks that might show up. And when you're looking at, you know, extra wavelengths to make sure that it's you know, action interference. All of a sudden, you see every single like. Let's say we're looking at calcium, and some of it's showing up on magnesium, but it's consistent. So it's on the 280 line. It's on the 279. All of them are showing the same thing. Those aren't interferences. They're actually contaminants. So that's not something that should be included in your table. But you might trick in be tricked into thinking that it should be. Mm-hmm.
2: So do we just trust our vendors every time we buy a starting material?
1: What? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> or no. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. One of the one of the frustrating things is, you know, when you I, I think I've seen this most with the rare earths, you know, that says this five nines pure, but they're not talking about aluminum. It's like we didn't include aluminum and it's like, well, yeah, there's alumina in there. Gotta subtract that out. So for us it matters. For them it doesn't. I mean, depends on the industry they're catering to
3: and we're definitely specialized. Well. And using the rare earths, there's so much other rare earths that they're like, oh, we would just not count those.
1: Well, no, they usually include those, but they do report them as oxides. So that gets a little confusing where we do everything metals basis. So yeah, we have to just analyze everything ourselves and make sure we know what
0: we're looking at. Yeah. And the method we use for that is just a combination of, you know, ICP OES and ICP mass spec, because it's measuring what's not supposed to be there is just extremely difficult. So it takes a lot of training Mm -hmm. to go through that much data and reduce it down and, you know, have accurate and, you know, reasonable results for what you think the contaminants are. Yeah. And your testing strategy will
1: change that as well. I mean, if you're looking at calibration curves, internal standards matter, ionization buffers, they're all going to get you a different number. So you got to really dig in and figure out what's the true number. The good news is with contamination, no one wants that certified.
0: Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's. The next section that Paul had was about chemical compatibility, but we've covered chemical compatibility in our last episode. So if you're interested in that topic, I would say please go back and listen to last week's episode. Let's talk about stability. So, anyone want to define what chemical stability is? Well, over time, it's still going to be there.
2: <laughs> 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 That's definitely the simplest way to put that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but with chemi- chemical stability, you're looking the main, I guess, visual indication that you've got a problem is a precipitate. Um, that's number one. But there's also the silent but deadly ones where they sticks to your plastic bottle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also a problem.
0: Yeah, most of our products. I mean, once you get the metal in an acid matrix, it's chemically stable for pretty much ever. But there are, you know, other products that we. You know, we manufacture and produce, you know, some of the iron chromatography organic standards that we produce. You know, some of those are subject to chemical you know, stability issues over the course of, you know, four to five years. And it, we think it's, you know, just some sort of degradation of the organic structure. pH ones are another one we've seen. We think it's, what, Tommy, you think it's uh, CO2 from the atmosphere? I think it's CO2. Yeah, those higher
1: pHs that are based in carbonate matrices, I think CO2 gets in and makes them acidic. Yeah, um, yeah. when I, we do testing on like pH 12 standards, you got to do it quick. Yeah. Even through your
0: course of your assay within 30 minutes, you can see the pH going down. Yeah. So it's definitely something, you know, if you're, if you have concerns about stability to think about, just sort of think about the physical properties of your solution and, you know, what might have an impact on that. There are ways that you can set up and, you know, a stability program in-house. We have to have one because we're ISO 17034 accredited. So we need to monitor the stability of our products and make sure that data is passed along to our customers. But you can set one up in-house as well, just simply by taking your standard, your working standard and comparing it against a fresh dilution. Ashley, you've probably recommended that a lot in tech support. Yeah,
2: That's usually my first step, you know, behind offering to design and do all this work here. If you're wanting to create your own working standards and stuff, you if you're not confident on chemical compatibility, instability. Definitely that old versus new is just the quickest and easiest way to kind of get an idea of how long you can use those standards. Once your numbers start drifting a little bit too far, then you know that somewhere between your last measurement and this one, you have found your window, your usage period there. So yeah, that's definitely one that we recommend a lot in, in tech support.
0: The next section in this chapter was called Availability, and I think this one was really interested, and I think there's a lot interesting, and a lot of topics that Paul sort of talked about, I think, get overlooked. You know, he mentioned, and we've talked about, you know, as well, protecting things from light, keeping solutions safe from biological growth, bringing solutions up to room temperature when they might be stored refrigerated, or... Maybe it's the middle of winter and you just got your shipment in and you really need your standards to run. You need to make sure they're at the right temperature, right? So does anyone have any thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, we get a lot of questions. That's another big tech support question. I just ordered this. It's frozen. Can I still use it? Yeah, definitely. You can Uh, just thaw it and make sure you mix it really well. We do 50 inversions typically, but let it come to room temperature and mix it so that you're not running into any density issues, things like that. Make sure it's homogenous and you should be good to go i think thomas mentioned in the last episode that refrigeration is in, at many times better than the tct bags. so it's <laughs> kind of free upgraded shipping if it accidentally breathes on its <laughs> way to you
1: <laughs> yeah for our stability studies though we have um we we do ship them Some t- we used to ship them to a hot place and a cold place to make sure they were good. So we would send them to like Alaska and Arizona, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they would just
0: ship them back and we would test them and see what's what. Exactly. Yeah. That transport stability is a, is a big one. All right, Joey, I'm going to kick this next one over to you as our resident documentation expert. Paul talked about documentation and why that's important. Do
3: you want to go into that? Yeah, of course. I mean, the super basic version is you need something to prove it is what it's, what we say it is. Like, I mean, If an auditor comes in, you need to be able to prove that that bottle of 1,000 ppm iron is iron, because if you don't have the proof, then well, I mean, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn that I can totally sell you. I have the deed and everything, but yeah, it just gives the, the traceability that auditors require. It gives the proof and just the peace of mind of knowing like that this is what we say it is. I look at some of the documentation for some of the products that we buy, the starting material. And I compare it to our documentation and I'm wondering, like, are you serious? Is this it? Like you have half a page of information to share with us. Most of our document, most of our certificates of analysis are at least four pages. That's Mm -hmm. just how much detail we want to share with you to make sure, you know, your auditing, your audits go as smoothly as possible. Or just what do you need to prove it is what you say it is?
2: Yeah. One of the things that we've done with our documentation in recent years is that we've moved everything onto our website. So that's, again, another question we get quite a bit when we're selling standards to new customers. Our SDS and C of As are all available through our SDS C of a search on the website, but that way you don't have to keep up with hard copies. You don't have to worry about them being the perfect quality or standard or whatever your auditor's in the mood for that day. You can just go to our website, pull up anything that you need. It's always at your fingertips. And personally, I think that's pretty great as far as SDS goes, because, you know, they need to be available at all times to everybody. But yeah, like Joey said, the our documentation is pretty in-depth, and that makes our jobs easier here, too, because we're also a customer of ourselves. We use our own standards. So if we want to rely on them, we want you to rely on them the same way. So the more we can help ourselves, the more we can help you, the better off we all are. I think that's our chemist working for chemists, thing popping up there, but... Yeah, documentation here is way more helpful than the, the types that I have seen come through quoting. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I really like our C of A's because it gives a lot of information about, you know, the impurities that might be present. We even go into details about the uncertainty calculations mm-hmm. that are on there. So if you have a question about anything, definitely check your C of A. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about the last topic that Paul sort of wrote about in this chapter, and that's traceability. So this really speaks to. You know, how can we make sure that there is an unbroken chain of comparisons all the way back to a base unit of the, you know, the International System of Measurements or the SI? That is something that we achieve through what's called a National Metrology Institute. In the case of us, we use NIST pretty much exclusively. Right, Thomas?
1: Yeah, we use NIST
0: for almost everything.
1: We we have gotten a couple out of the country before. I think we've gotten an arsenic standard from Germany. Mm -hmm. We've looked at some Japanese ones, but... NIST definitely has the best catalog, but it scares me. Some of their stuff's out of stock and some of it longer than I care to admit. The good news is as long as we trace to the original through our own standards, it's okay. But yeah, hope they get more help and funding (laughs) over the years.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've had some conversations with the folks at NIST and they're really good folks trying to do their best to make things traceable back to the SI. There are some, you know, the folks at NIST actually provide a lot of the traceability to other NMIs. So they're really a key player in, you know, the worldwide web of this traceability. So we trace our products, you know, usually back through NIST to the SI, but we have had occasions where, you know, there wasn't a NMI solution standard available. So we've actually had to go through the process and we've created what we call PCRMs. So we have actually put that work in to create SI traceable products of our own and we've done that for osmium and iridium so far so sort of taking that certification work to the next level
1: those are the ones that nist never had on the catalog so i guess they're the most challenging and and whatnot but yeah we're filling that hole hope to do that with other ones like i mentioned in i think one of our other talks we've trying to get as many second methods as possible so if we don't have traceability at all it's like what are you tracing it to it's kind of meaningless. But you can still do gravimetric and be traceable to the kilogram. It's just not as, not as a hearty of a traceability.
0: Exactly. Well, we hope that you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivyignite at inorganicventures.com. And if you'd like to learn more, feel free to check out our virtual learning academy, Ivy Ignite. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 3 of the ICP Operations Guide, where our team will discuss topics like handling, calculations, preparation, and more. We hope you will join us then, and have a fantastic week.